This past summer, my nine-year-old daughter and I, Madison, we went on a father-daughter date and we went to Waldemere. I'm sure many of you have been to Waldemere. So we left after dinner and we went to Waldemere and boy, we had a great time. We rode, we rode lots of rides, we played games, we had something to eat. It was a very special time. There were a few rides that Madison, my nine-year-old, had never ridden at Waldemere. She's been there a lot. She's ridden almost everything there. But when we went, she had never ridden the Ravine Flyer. Do you know it? Well, as you go around the park in Waldemere, the presence of the Ravine Flyer is always felt, isn't it? I mean, you can be at another ride, you can be at a little kid's ride, and all of a sudden you'll hear rushing metal go whipping by somewhere, and you'll hear people shrieking in horror. And if you've been there a while, you get used to it, and you don't, you don't turn around, but in the back of your mind you go, oh, the Ravine Flyer. Well, over the course of this evening with my daughter Madison, we talked for a while, and I kept bringing it up. You know, hey, do you want to ride the Ravine Flyer tonight? I think, I think you're going to like it. I think you're going to, you can do it. We, you know, we'll be able to go home and tell Mom. So finally, it had gotten dark, and we decided, last ride of the night, we're doing it. Ravine Flyer. We wait in line. It's pitch black. We get up. We get strapped in with the uh, shoulder harness, we get clicked in, and I look over at Madison and start thinking, big mistake. <laughs> You're a terrible father, Justin. She's going to be scarred for life. There's nothing we can do. We're locked in. Click, 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 click. We start up the, the hill, and all I can do is just put my arm around her and say, it's going to be okay. And there we are in the darkness. And we're a little ways back, and you know, we see the cars disappearing in front of us. And we hear the shrieks. We get to the top, and over we go. And Madison screams like a little girl, because she is a little girl, and her father screams like a little girl, too. <laughs> Even though he's a 37 year old man. You know, I got off the ride and I waited for her to get out and I was worried and I looked at her and she had this look on her face like she could yell and scream and cry and laugh all at the same time. And you know, really it was the most scary, it was the most horrifying, wonderful, exciting thing I think she did all summer. Well, turn with me in your Bibles to another frightening but wonderful episode in the holy texts of Scripture, turn with me to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41, our text for this morning. Now you'll notice as you turn in your Bibles that there are subtitles or there are headings to the sections in your translation of God's Word. Now, that's not actually part of the text, but the translators, they do this as they translate the Bible so that you can quickly turn in your Bible and look on any page and quickly find the, the topic heading of that section and find out what's there. And you can find things quicker. And probably your Bible says about Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41, it probably says something like, Jesus calms the storm. 
Or it might say something like, the wind and the the waves obey Jesus. But if the translators called me, and they never will, ever, but if they did, and they said, Justin, what should we call Mark chapter 4, 35 through 41? I would say, without hesitation, you call this passage one crazy boat ride. Let's look at one crazy boat ride. Follow along with me. That day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, that is, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. So Jesus is busy ministering all day in Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee, appropriately, is right next to Galilee. And Jesus says, okay, Evening's coming on. Let's get in a boat. Let's go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. This is very common. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. So it's not just Jesus and the disciples. It's other people who want to continue to be affected by his ministry here, his teaching. They get in boats too, and all these boats set across the sea, and it's starting to turn to evening. Mark records, a furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Mark records in his gospel that there was a furious squall. Now, sea squalls on the Sea of Galilee are common. Because of the topography of that region, because of weather systems, It's a common thing to be on the Sea of Galilee and a great big storm can kind of come out of nowhere and just, you know, whack the lake and you're caught in it. But Mark records that this storm was particularly furious. Furious to the point where the waves are breaking over the boat and it's starting to take on water and they're starting to get scared. I don't know if you've ever been in a boat that was taking on water in bad seas. Probably there are some people here who have been. Frightening experience. I've been in lots of boats, and I've been in boats that made me uncomfortable, but I've never been in a boat where I actually thought it was going to go down. And I've been in a little boat in the ocean where the waves were too big for me. They weren't too big for the boat. They weren't too big for the captain. But they were way too big for me, and I had a strong and repeated urge to give my breakfast back to the sea, if you know what I'm saying, over the side of the boat. It's terrifying. Seasickness is awful. Well, the disciples are in a much, much worse situation than that. There, a lot of them are experienced fishermen, sailors. This is a bad storm. Jesus was in the stern. And for those of you that don't know boats at all, the stern is the back. Jesus was in the back, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Now, is that really a question? I mean, they're accusing Jesus in their hour of need, in their moment of distress, as their lives, they think, are possibly coming to an end. They're not asking Jesus, Jesus, do you really care if we drown? They're yelling. They're accusing Him. 
This isn't a question. It's an accusation. They're saying, hey, what's wrong with you? Don't you see what's happening? Now, I'm sure none of you husbands and wives out there know anything about making an accusation in the form of a question, do you? No, you're probably too sanctified for that. Ever made an accusation in the form of a question? Have you ever heard something like this? Do you even care about my feelings? It's not really a question. It's an accusation. They get Jesus up and they start accusing him of not caring. And then we see what our Lord does. He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. Now, there's nothing miraculous or amazing that a man stood up and said to the sea, Quiet, settle down. Because any one of us, you or I, could get up in a boat that was in distress and say those words, right? Except if we did it, nothing would change. When a man named Jesus got up in a real boat on a real lake in the Middle East, surrounded by real men who were eyewitnesses of this event, in a real storm, in a boat that was taking on water, and he said, quiet, be still. Instantly, the forces of nature obeyed just the sound of his voice. And I want to make one real basic, clear point here at this place in the text. And it's very simple. This really happened. I think sometimes we get inoculated against the supernatural, don't we? I mean, if you've been walking with the Lord for any number of years... And you're reading the Bible and you're hearing preaching. I mean, we hear this, we read this all the time. We read our Bibles, we read the Gospels. We go, oh yeah, yeah, this part, Jesus calms the storm, that's great. But do you realize that a man, a real man with flesh and blood, a man who got tired and had to sleep, a man who ate food, went to the bathroom, a man who hurt, a man who was just like you, in every way, a full human being got up and spoke to a sea squall and it listened to him. And I really don't think that Mark includes this episode in his Bible or in, in, his, in his gospel in the Bible so that I could get up here 2,000 years later and say something like, well, this means that Jesus can calm the storms in your life. And of course, if you've known Jesus, if you're a Christian for any amount of time, if you've known him, you know that of course he calms the storms in our life. Of course he calms us. Of course he comforts us. Of course he rules and he does things in our lives. But I don't think Mark wrote this for us to say, well, then Jesus can calm the storms in our life. Mark is writing. He's bearing witness to this man named Jesus. Jesus says to his disciples, now that this has just happened, 
And He doesn't come to His disciples and say, there, there, it's okay. Everyone, it's okay. What does He say? He said to His disciples, why are you so afraid? You still have no faith. It's like He's saying, don't you get it? Why are you afraid? Don't you have a clue who I am? And Mark leaves us in this incident, this telling of this story, this real event that happened. He leaves us with this verse. Listen. They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey Him. Mark does not say that they walked up to Jesus and slapped Him on the back and said, Way to go, buddy. That was awesome. Mark says, When the sea was calmed, the other disciples in that boat were shaking in fear. They were absolutely terrified. They just witnessed a human being talk to a thunderstorm and it obeyed him without delay. If I had been in the boat, Mark would have had to have added more to this passage. He would have had to have said, if I was one of the disciples, he would have had to have said, Justin, being of a most cowardly disposition, jumped out of the boat with all his clothes on and swam for shore and drowned several hundred yards away from the boat. I mean, you imagine this. That's scary to see a man do something like that. And as the lens of the gospel writer's pen backs away from the scene, what you see is a lake that is dead flat calm. And you see a bunch of men in the boat who are terrified. And one man named Jesus who is not terrified. Let's look at another place in Scripture when the dark waters of chaos were calmed and restrained. Turn with me in your Bibles to the first book of your Bibles, Genesis, the book of beginnings, to the first chapter and the first verse. I'm sure you're familiar with this passage. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Follow along with me as I read. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. And listen, darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and He separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness He called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. 
God called the expanse sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters He called seas, and God saw that it was good. In the beginning, Moses, by inspiration of the Spirit, says that God, the sovereign God, Jehovah, the only true God, created everything that is out of nothing by speaking. And we don't know everything about the beginning. What is this darkness over the surface of the deep? What is that? The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. I don't know exactly what it was. But it was real. And I know that God formed and filled, He created everything against the backdrop of darkness and waters of chaos. I mean, if you think about it, Moses tells us the beginning of everything, and he says, Look, there was darkness and there was chaotic waters. And then God formed against that, against that backdrop. He restrained and created everything against that. He said, let there be light. Well, now he's, he's defying the darkness. He's bringing light. He's restraining darkness. He gives us the sun and the moon and the stars. He forms and he fills. And then what does he say? Let there be sky. Let there be an expanse. He, he separates the waters. He restrains them. He says, I'm going to make an atmosphere. I have all these creatures I want to live to breathe air. So he makes an expanse between the dark waters. And then what does he do? Well, the waters below, that's not good enough. I'm going to further restrain and I'm going to create seas and I'm going to create land. And why? Well, he's going to fill the land with all kinds of creatures. He's going to fill the land, even with human beings. And how does God create? When He comes to create, how does He do? What does Moses say? Does He roll up His sleeves and stretch out and really get His back into it and exert Himself and create everything? No. Not the living, sovereign, holy God of heaven and earth. What does He do? He says. He's so powerful, all He does is He just says, let there be light. And then out of nothing, ex nihilo, everything that he says happens. He's a God who speaks over the dark waters of chaos. Instantly, everything is created. Let's go back to our passage from Mark this morning. Go back to Mark. Remember, we were just there. Flash forward to the Gospel of Mark again, and Mark left us with this haunting question, and he doesn't answer it in the text. He just moves on to the next event. Remember the question? Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? They said as they sat there in terror of this man named Jesus. Do you know who was in the boat? Why did the wind and the waves 
obey the words of this man named Jesus who told them to settle down and be quiet? Because they had heard his voice before at the beginning of time. And the weather forecast changed immediately. 100% chance of calm seas right now. They had to obey because Jehovah, Yahweh, God himself was standing in the boat and they were horrified. And their terror, and remember, these are not Jesus' enemies. These are his disciples. These are the ones he loves. These are the ones he will die for. They're his friends and they're afraid of him. It's hard for us sometimes when we read our Bibles to come to terms with the God, even with the man Jesus that we find there, isn't it? I mean, we like to take the rough edges and shave that off. We encounter a Jesus who scares his closest friends. I mean, really scares them. And we go, oh, well, that's not the Jesus I know. One theologian pastor put it really well. He said, you know what we do? And if you're honest, I've done this many times. We come to God like he's a buffet table. The God that is revealed to us in Scripture. And we say, I'll take some grace and some mercy and some love and some forgiveness and some intimacy and some deep personal affection. I like all that. That's comfortable. But holiness, a God who's almighty, a God who's all-powerful, a God with perfect justice, a God who comes in judgment, who tells me what to do and how to do it and makes me uncomfortable. No, no, no. Those parts of God, I leave up there. I don't want those parts on my plate. And don't get me wrong. Love and grace and mercy and kindness and affection and personal relationship is all part of the God that is revealed to us. The God-man, Jesus, in the scriptures. But there's this other side. And we read something like this. And if you're a normal, sinful human being, you don't like it. I don't like terror. I don't like a Jesus that can terrify me. But you know, the truth of the matter is, if you want a God, if you want a Jesus who doesn't offend, who doesn't scare, who doesn't command, who doesn't judge, who doesn't even make war, then you have to go get a different book. Because the God of the Bible does all those things, and not just in the Old Testament. There's a fear of the Lord that is healthy and appropriate and good. Let me be really careful and clear. If you know the Lord, it is not a fear that leads to condemnation. I'm not talking. There is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, that is a promise you can take to the bank. It's not a slavish fear. It's not a fear of condemnation. It's not a fear that when Jesus comes back, boy, he's really going to hammer you. If you put your faith in Him, you don't have to be afraid like that anymore. 
But there's still this thing called the fear of the Lord, even the fear of Christ that we find everywhere from Genesis to Revelation in our Bibles. And we find it all over the New Testament as well. Sometimes we say, oh, well, that's an Old Testament thing. Yeah, we find it everywhere. We don't have time this morning to go to all the passages just in the New Testament that deal with this healthy, reverent fear of the Lord, even a godly, good, edifying fear of Jesus. In the C.S. Lewis's famous children's story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I'm sure many of you have read it or seen the movie. But you know the story. There's four kids. They accidentally stumble into a magical land called Narnia. And in Narnia, everything's different. There are centaurs and creatures they had never seen before, half human and half animal. And some of the creatures talk in this magical land called Narnia. And as they begin their adventure in Narnia, they find out from some of these animals that they're talking to that there's one king in all of Narnia. You know who is it? who it is? Aslan, right. Aslan's the king. Now, at this point, I want to read a little bit of this book to you, just a tiny bit. But at this point in the story, the girls, Lucy and Susan, have never met Aslan. They've just heard about him. And they're talking with two talking beavers, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And the, the conversation turns to Aslan. Who is Aslan? Who is Aslan? asks Susan. Aslan, said Mr. Beaver, why don't you know He's the king. He's the lord of the whole wood. Is, is he a man? Asked Lucy. Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not, I tell you. He's the king of the wood. And son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall, rather, I shall rather feel nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and that's no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe? said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Do you know the king? The same man who spoke to a thunderstorm on a lake and it instantly obeyed him. The lion from the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ our Lord, is the real king, isn't he? And when he roars, the world falls silent. And that is scary. But it's good scary. 
He roared on a lake in the Middle East at a thunderstorm, and the world fell silent. And he roared as he exercised dominion and power and real authority over every power of darkness, every demon. What would he do? He'd just speak to them, and they had to leave. He roared as he even raised the dead during his earthly ministry. Mark gets to that right after this text about this sea squall. The lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ, really roared when after having been crucified and dead and buried in a tomb for three days, literally and physically came bursting out of there. That was a roar. And he continues to roar, doesn't he? The lion is on the loose. If you know him, you know this is true. He saves sinners. He conquers the powers of darkness. He commissions his church to go into all the world and make them all my disciples. And he does all of this based on his supreme authority as king. Do you know the king? Many of you do. Many of you here this morning know him. I know him. But do you ever tame him in your heart? I do. I do it all the time. I start to think of him like he's my card-playing buddy from Friday night. Instead of the Lord of glory incarnate in human flesh. And He commissions us to go and to take the gospel everywhere. He commissions some of us to go back to Russia, the ends of the earth. He commissions us, but He commissions moms to go to their homes and dads to go to their homes and make disciples of the nations. We all have a role in this. He calls you to go to your job. He calls you to go whatever situation you're in. He says, go into your world and make disciples. And it's all based in His authority as King. We need reminded of His deity sometimes, don't we? Because we reduce Him down until He's not the lion anymore. Some of you here this morning listening don't know this man called Jesus who rebuked a thunderstorm and it was instantly calm. And you need to know him. This same man with this much power and authority given to him, God incarnate in human flesh, the story doesn't end there in Mark. What does he do? He intentionally goes and dies on a Roman cross. He lets men do that to him. And why does he do it? To bring a bunch of filthy sinners like us into a wonderful, saving, glorious relationship with him, with God. And at the cross, the, the God of all the earth takes all that just wrath and it's just and it's right and he takes it and he pours it all out on Jesus instead of us. And he says, all you have to do is believe in my Son. 
And then this counts for you. The king who goes to a cross. Do you know him? If you don't, I can't guarantee you that safe will be the best word you will have to describe him. He's the king. Did you hear what Mrs. Beaver said? Of course it's not safe. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he's the king. But you know what? He's good. And he's good all the time. And he loves sinners. In closing today, I want to read a passage from the Apostle John's Revelation. So we, we started in the Gospels. We went to the first book of the Bible. Turn to me, with me to the last book in your Bibles, John's Apocalyptic Revelation. Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. You know, Jesus comes the first time, and He comes clothed in great humility, doesn't He? I mean... He comes and he's born basically in, the, in a barn in the ghetto. He comes in great humility. He never possesses a lot. He never has a lot of money. He even says, I don't even have a house to stay in. Are you sure? He says to his disciples, are you sure you want to follow me? He's very humble. He's the friend of sinners. And we know that he is. But do you know that though the king is patient, he's coming back. And when he comes back, he doesn't come back in humility. He offers himself to sinners now in humility. He says, come to me, I'll save you, I'll give you a life that's actually worth living. But he comes back in great glory and power. He's not the tooth fairy. He's not a genie in the bottle that we get to put in our pocket and then when we need something, we call him up in heaven and we tell him what the problem is and he scurries off and he runs and goes and does it for us. He's the king. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. And I want to leave you with this glorious picture of our Lord. I saw heaven standing open. And there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. He's describing the man in the boat named Jesus. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. This is scary. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe 
and on his thigh he has this name written. Now listen to his name. The man who told a thunderstorm to be quiet. And it listened. King of kings and Lord of all lords. He's scary sometimes. But boy, is he good. Even so, come Lord Jesus and rule over us. Rule in our lives. Rule in this church. Rule in this city and the surrounding area. Is that your prayer?